Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. We have already read from Zechariah chapter 9 in our unison reading, and I will probably still refer to that. In fact, I will read it again um, in a moment. This is Palm Sunday, so to some degree you know what you're going to get on Palm Sunday. It's just like coming on uh, you know, Christmas Eve, you know what you're going to get at Christmas Eve. Or, or next Sunday, I think you know what you're going to get on next Sunday too. Uh, because these are important things. Remember, you don't have the Christian faith if you don't have next Sunday. Okay? If there's no resurrection, then we're fools. And we could be out doing other things. But yet, because Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits from the dead, it is clear that those who are in him, whose heart has been changed by Jesus Christ and by his grace, we too will come out of the grave when he returns, when the Father sends him. And until that time, we are to live, in a sense, in that power and authority, because the presence of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer, we understand that these things are real, that these things are true. And you can't get to next Sunday if you don't get Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Coming into Jerusalem on his timetable and on his schedule. So if you're able, will you stand with me this morning and I'll read from John chapter 12. What is affectionately known as the triumphal entry. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us grace and understanding to your word today. Open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, that these things would be crystal clear to us, not only in their events and what they mean, but also in how we are to live because of these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. On the next day, the great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, and went out to meet him, And began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. We're going to start off with the great theological truth of a yogiism. A yogiism does not show up on my spell check, okay? But it does show up in the dictionary under common usage, okay? A yogiism is one of those sayings that comes from Yogi Berra, the baseball player, okay? He was probably one of the greatest catchers uh, ever to play baseball. And 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 if you don't if they don't roll off your tongue. Um, you might think of these, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay, very good. Um, oh, man, uh, it's not over till it's over. Okay, and then on and today's uh, example is it's deja vu all over again. 
Okay, now this this particular one, uh, Yogi Bear explained where this one came from. He was sitting um, watching Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris hit back-to-back home runs all season long, and when they got up and did it again, he turned to somebody and said, Jesus, deja vu all over again. I can't do the accent. But that's where that one came from, as if he had seen it again and again and again, which he had. Now, the, the event we're going to deal with today is well known. It is Palm Sunday, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entrance, but in reality, it is the humble entrance because he did not come on a big charger in, with the army, but he came on the foal of a donkey. Okay? These are the events that begin Holy Week. They lead up to the death and eventually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the events of this Sunday should not have been a surprise to anybody in Jerusalem who had even a a smattering of knowledge of the Old Testament, specifically of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Now, let me read that to you just so uh, to refresh your memory. Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off from the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will seek peace to, he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophecy, as as we'll see in a moment in, in its context, is saying that this one who comes in this fashion will bring peace. Now, let me give you the context of what Zechariah is writing about here in this prophecy. At this point in Zechariah's life, he's an old man. Israel is still weak. It is vulnerable to foreign, it's been under foreign domination for some time. Uh, Nehemiah has not yet returned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So you've got these people who are left and they're just kind of milling around and living this uh, very low subsistence existence here. And they're concerned about what happens if their neighbors attack them, what happens if they come in and... and, um, they, as we're trying to, to rebuild whatever it is we can of our lives, what if they come in and take all of these things? The people are frightened. What if we're uh, carried off into captivity as some of their kinsmen were? They're, all these things are going on in their minds. They fear what the future might hold. And here in Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 is a prophecy about Israel's future. And there are two burdens which are listed, the burden in the beginning of of chapter 9 and the burden in the beginning of chapter 12. The first burden, chapter 9, focuses on Israel's coming king and emphasizes his first coming. That is the Messiah's first coming. And we see here, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. How is he coming? Humble, mounted on a donkey. That's the way that he is coming. Now, the second burden in chapters 12 through 14 talks about the eventual restoration of Israel and the the fact that the Lord has not forgotten them, that he is in charge of everything, and eventually he will bring all of these events to a close and that he will care for them. And it's interesting, the first first burden is about also deals with the rejection of the Messiah who comes in this fashion. And the second burden deals with the ultimate victory of Christ over all things. So chapter 9 emphasizes that God will bring down the proud, but he helps those who are helpless. So in the first eight verses of chapter 9 of Zechariah, God is 
This is a prophecy about God's judgment upon the neighbors of Israel, upon the neighbors of Israel. And amazingly, this is, this is 150 years in the future. Zechariah says this is coming. And the individual that carries out the judgment on Israel's neighbors, uh, from what we can tell historically, it's Alexander the Great. Okay? It's Alexander the Great. And, and remember, in about 334, um, Alexander, who's about 21 at that time, takes 35,000 troops and decides that they're going to conquer Persia. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I just watched Alexander the Great this week on TV. You know, I do theology by cinema. And it was Richard Burton. And I just never got comfortable with him as this blonde hair, uh, crazy, victorious guy. You know, all the portrayals of Alexander the Great is, is this, he's just a little bit crazy. Well, he had to be somewhat crazy to think that he could conquer the entire world. But that's what he set out to do at 21. Okay? And with about 35,000 troops, he headed off to Persia. And we see in the beginning of chapter 9 the judgments that are going to come through Alexander on Hadric, on Hamath, on Tyre, on Sidon, on Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. Okay? These are all the neighboring cities and, and peoples of Israel who have basically usurped Israel's authority, been nasty to them, and God is bringing judgment upon them. And then in uh, verse 8, it says, But I will camp around my house because of, an, because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. Now remember that phrase, passes by and returns. Because Alexander the Great came down and he took out all of these neighbors of Israel, passed by Jerusalem, went down to Egypt. When, when Alexander's army got there, Egypt went, we give up. Okay? So Alexander turned around and went back to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem had not given him the supplies that he asked for when he was invading their neighbors. Okay? Now, we understand that God promises Israel their, his protection and his care. And in reality, Alexander eventually just went on by Jerusalem and did not deal with them. Now, on Palm Sunday... John chapter 12 is, is listed in, in the other Gospels as well. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah about these things and about God's care for them. So any student of the Old Testament should have known that when Jesus rides in, not like Alexander on this big white charger and an army behind him, but when he rides in on the colt of a donkey that had not been ridden before, he rides in humbly. He doesn't ride in as this with this big fanfare and the band. He rides in and people throw their cloaks on the road and they wave these palm branches and they quote from the passages of the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 118, as we'll see in a moment. This is the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and that fulfills the prophecy talked about in Zechariah. Now, he staged this event. I want you to know that. Jesus staged this event. In the past, he had told people to be quiet about who he was. And we see this in various places. It's often referred to as the messianic secret, where Jesus would heal someone, and then he would say what? Don't go and tell anybody. Okay? But let's be honest. If I had just been laying on a mat for 25 years, and Jesus comes along and says, get up and walk, and I get up and walk, how am I going to contain that? I mean, everybody is going to be able to see, aren't you the guy that was on that mat for 25 years? And there you are running around, what happened? 
So the joy is simply going to overflow. But Jesus says, in a sense, it's not my time yet. I don't want to do these things out in public. Well, now it is his time. And he is going to do something very public. And that is ride into Jerusalem in this way. So that everybody can see that this is his timetable. It's not the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and the Sadducees had said, if you find Jesus, come and tell us so that we can go and arrest him. Well, they just couldn't work out their timetable and their plan to arrest him. So Jesus does what? He rides in in plain sight and says, here I am. Now we can begin the days leading up to my death and eventually my resurrection. Flip over a page back to John chapter 10. I want you to understand the importance of this. All four Gospels show us that this is Jesus' plan. And in particular, it is mentioned here in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Did they kill Jesus? No, they didn't. He gave up his life. What did he say on the cross? Remember? Father, into thy hands I commit. And then he gave up his life. They did not kill him on the cross. They came back with that that stick or whatever to break the legs of everybody to hasten their death so they wouldn't be on the cross overnight. They come to the first thief and they break his legs. Remember, crucifixion death is a death by suffocation. All those nasty things that go into leading up, when they're on the cross, it is suffocation that kills them. Okay, Because they have to push up on their legs to get a breath. Well, they came by and they broke the legs, basically right across the shin bone, very nasty, painful thing, so that they could no longer push up and get a breath. It would hasten their death. So they come to Jesus. He's already dead. He has given up his life. They did not take it from him. Now, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem takes place for a variety of reasons. I have four here that are listed uh, that are very specific reasons why Jesus enters in this fashion. First of all, by entering Jerusalem in this way, he stirs up the crowd. What, What the gospel say, look, the whole world has gone after him. It appears that way. All of Jerusalem has gone out to see him and to see him enter. It can't be hidden. There is no longer any need to hide the things of Jesus. Here he is. The whole world, appears, has gone after him. It stirs up the crowd. And they knew that the enthusiasm of the crowd would provoke an eventual eventual response from the Jewish leadership. Remember, they had been looking for him, and he says, Here I am. You can't miss me now. Let's get on with this. It is now the time. Secondly, Jesus, by entering into Jerusalem in this way, is provoking a response from the Jewish leaders. He provokes a response from the Jewish leaders. He knows that they have been after him. And now he comes into town and says, okay, now is the time. I've ordered these events. Now you must respond. And they were simply carrying out their their natural sinful inclination to get this guy that they thought was a heretic, who they thought was blaspheming their God, And they say, now it's our time to kill you. And we're going to do that. And Jesus is, in a sense, making it a necessity for them by entering in this fashion. He is doing it on his terms, 
not on their terms. Thirdly, and as we can see from the, what we've read, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 in particular. There are other places in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering servant, that talk about crucifixion, that talk about all of these things in and around this week in particular. Now we know from uh, what the crowd was saying, they were shouting out, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they were, they were also getting the theology a little bit skewed, as we'll see in a moment. They were calling him the king, and they were expecting more out of him than he was going to give them at that moment. So they cry out in these psalms, and, and Psalm 118 was one of those uh, songs that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem, the pilgrim songs, Okay expecting. This was a a song of expectation that they would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem. The fourth item, as Jesus enters in this way into Jerusalem, he shows us once again what Israel expected their Messiah to be was not what he was giving them. Their expectation of a Messiah had become skewed by their own selfish desires, their own uh, self-view of their self-importance, that God will eventually come and he's going to clean out these Romans, he's going to clean out all of this oppression that we're under, and he's going to ride in on this big white charger like Alexander the Great and take over everybody, kill the Romans, and we're going to be in charge, and that's going to usher in a time of our authority and a time of our peace and a time where we set the rules and Rome is out. But that's not the way Jesus comes in. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 10. And all of these things happen just in the way that Jesus wants them. But remember, his disciples just don't get it. They haven't gotten this picture of what is going on yet. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples exactly what will happen. That's why we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. I guess if, if I get to Mark chapter 10, we'll be good. Okay. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Okay, now now I'm going to read the second verse in just a second. Uh, Can you tell me what you want? Okay, don't try to make it a hint. Don't try to make it, um, you know, can't you pick up on my vibes? Tell me what you want. That's, uh, I like that. That makes it easy, right? We like three points. I want this and this and this. What do you want on your hamburger? Oh, I don't know. Whatever you think is good. Okay? No, I want tomato and mayonnaise and ketchup and mustard, okay? Now, those things are exactly. So Jesus says exactly what is going to happen. Verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Well, 
You know, they arrested him. How did that happen? They, they, they scourged him. I didn't know that was coming. How did Jesus end up on the cross? Where did all this come from? Jesus told him, but yet their eyes were not open to exactly understand all of these things. Okay, they weren't quite ready for this. And you get the same thing when you read Zechariah. We think, well, why didn't they understand that this is what would happen to the Messiah? It's like a novel, okay? Big, thick, 900-page novel. And you go through the first couple chapters, and you see all these characters that are listed. And, and you go through the novel, and you're reading page 700, and, and that character from the first chapter still hasn't emerged. And you think, well, why, what was important about that? And you get to the last chapter, and the author has wrapped it all up. Okay, it's that type of thing. Jesus has said these things, and it is not until later that they have the capacity to understand them. Let me give you a couple examples. Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. You mean this big stone thing? Don't you know how long it took to build that? Jesus was speaking about what? About his body. If a seed falls into the ground and it dies, it bears much fruit. It has to die before it bears much fruit. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A little while and you'll see me no more. And again in a little while you will see me. His death and his resurrection. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, David calls Christ Lord, but yet Christ calls him his son. How is that possible? They don't understand those things until after his death and his resurrection. Okay, so he is pointing out to some of these things That this is what will happen. They just don't grasp it until afterwards. John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. On the next day, the great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 15, fear not, or uh, blessed is he who will stick with 13. This is a quote from Psalm 118, one of those psalms of of ascent as they go up to Jerusalem. They were talking about the future. But the crowd kind of gets it wrong after a while. They they talk about the king, and they have these kingly expectations about Jesus. They don't have these salvific expectations. They don't have these humble expectations about Jesus. They are still focused on their own misunderstanding of what Jesus will do. They don't grasp the fact that he is coming with salvation. They think he is coming with power, earthly power, to conquer and to change. They're solely interested in the political change, not in the inward changed. Now, we understand that some of those who were along the path had seen his mighty works, and they praised him for his mighty works. They Remember, they were the kind of people who said, oh, you fed the 5,000, and they followed him along, hopefully hoping to get another meal on the next day because they didn't bring any food themselves or they saw him raise the Lazarus or they saw him heal the guy that had been in the mat for 25 years and they, they were praising him because of his wonderful works they were not understanding the salvation that he brought they were not understanding how he came humbly even though he was the creator of all things so there are a couple things I want us to walk away with today for sure There is a great deal of emotional enthusiasm wrapped up in this day, okay? A great deal of emotional enthusiasm that is not true faith. Because remember, there are people here who are crying out Hosanna and and waving the palm branches and putting their cloaks on the road 
I bet in four or five days they're going to be part of that crowd out there yelling, crucify him. Okay? He didn't bring the change. He didn't bring the power. Where are the soldiers? He's not what we expected. Now we want him dead because he's nothing but a liar. Okay? Emotional enthusiasm does not equate with genuine faith. It's nice to be enthusiastic. I don't want us to be boring Christians. I want us to be enthusiastic. I mean, we've been changed. We have been changed and saved for all eternity. That ought to be exciting. But don't equate simple excitement with real faith. Real faith comes from a changed heart, comes from the depth of understanding what the Lord has done. Out of that comes the power to live this life through the the Holy Spirit. Okay? The second thing, important thing, is that Israel's failure to respond and understand this moment in time was due to their lack of knowledge of the Word. They did not understand the Old Testament. They did not understand the Word that the Lord had given them. It was their ignorance of Scripture that caused them to miss the Messiah. Now, George Gallup, the the pollster, tells us that there are similar factors in the church today. He said in a recent article, the Bible is the least read bestseller in America. The least read bestseller. It is the perennial bestseller of all books. He said there there is a Bible for every man, woman, and child, dog, and cat in America. They're just everywhere, okay? But we read it it the least of all the books that we have as a group. He found that most Americans are still, in in his words, biblical illiterates who seldom turn to the Bible for guidance. Why don't we understand what the Lord is doing in our lives? Why don't I understand why I'm going through this? Why don't I grasp what the Lord is doing? I keep asking him about it. Well, have you read about it? Do you understand his character? Do you know what he is about? Do you understand the way that he works? If you do that, then you can come to grips with why you are in the midst of this situation. Lack of knowledge of what the Lord said would happen kept most of those people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, it kept them from understanding that the Passover lamb was in their midst, the one who would bring forgiveness and salvation to them. Now, because of those two things, I think it leads to these two things. Two wrong notions about heaven. Wrong notions about heaven. See, if, you don't, if you're just emotional about God and you don't have a depth of the understanding of the word, then what happens is that people will think that a loving God will not send anybody to hell. You know, our sinfulness leads us there. The loving God intervenes and brings some out from that. The loving God comes down and grabs us. Okay, think of the day, if you're a believer, think of the day that you came to Christ. Think of the day that your life was changed. You were on the road to eternal damnation, and he comes down in his loving kindness and mercy and says, no, you're going to be my child. You went from his enemy to his child in that instant. In that instant. If we don't know the word, we don't understand those things. We think that we're, uh, secondly, we think we're, we're, we're good enough to get there in just the way we are. Right? Just the way we are. Well, God wouldn't send any decent person. I'm a moral person. I'm not as bad as who? I, I just have to find one person I'm better than. Okay? And I would think that God would therefore take me into his perfect care. Remember, if we're going to trust God, then we trust him completely. If we're going to trust on our own efforts and our own works, then our works have to be what? Perfect. Okay? Sin cannot be in the presence of our Heavenly Father. He makes a way for that to happen. 
by washing our sins through Jesus Christ. If you want to get to the Lord on your own, then you better be perfect. I won't ask how many of us were not perfect this morning, because none of us were. Our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, whatever it was, would have condemned us this morning. But it is this graciousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He doesn't come on the charger with an army. He comes humbly as the Messiah. Do you recognize him as such? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. and We see this great entry. We see that it was foretold. We see that it is according to your timetable. We see that Christ gives up his life for us. No one takes it from him. We see that this is done for us so that we might know the truth, so that we that, who hear these things might understand this great gift that you have given to us, that our hearts might be changed, that we might give up any thought that we could ever be good enough to be in your presence, but rest on the fact that that could never happen. But you, because of your love for us, have made a way where our sins can be cleansed, where we can come right into your presence and rest solely on the work of Christ. Lord, this is an important week for believers. I mean, every day is important for us. This is an important week as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice for us. A love this great we don't see anywhere else in this world. It is tough to get our minds around a love where the creator of all things would send his son to cleanse our sin. He had no sin, and we had no righteousness. He took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. Now we can stand before you. Lord, fix these things in our hearts, that as we move forward in this week, we might be mindful of this great gift of salvation that is given to us, secured for us, demonstrated for us through the work of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.